God gave Jonah a message to go to a place called Nineveh and call Nineveh to start following God and to start experiencing his love and his mercy. But Jonah didn't want to go because Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria and Assyria was kind of the bully on the block who was the enemy of Israel. And so he didn't want to go. And so instead of going east to Nineveh, he goes as far west as possible to a place called Tarshish, which required him to get on a boat. But he gets on the boat and he sets sail and God sends a great storm to get his attention. Now, as the storm rages, the sailors on this boat are fearing for their lives. Jonah, not so much. He's sleeping through most of this. But they wake him up. They say, what's going on? What's causing this? And he fesses up, says, hey, guys, I'm running from God. And they say, what are we going to do? How do we stop it? And his thought is, well, throw me overboard. Perhaps the logic being, if I'm dead, God can no longer pursue me. If he can't pursue me anymore, he can't call me. If he can't call me, he's going to leave you guys alone. They don't want to do this because they don't like Jonah very much at this particular point because he caused this storm to come upon them, but they don't want to kill him. And so they try to go back to shore themselves, but they can't do it. So finally they relent and they agree to throw Jonah overboard. He hits the water, the storm calms, and they praise God. And we talked also last week about one of God's great causes that we see throughout Scripture is his desire to reconcile all people unto himself. No matter how sinful, no matter what you or they may have done, no matter what you may not have done, no matter how sinful or bad or evil Nineveh was, he loved them. And he was tenacious in his pursuit of them. He was willing to go to incredible lengths to, to accomplish his will. And particularly in Jonah's life, to get his attention. Why? Because he loved Jonah. Why does he do that for us? Because he loves us. Because he has great plans for you. Because he wants to shape your life so that you can go forward and reveal his love to other people as well. And we ended last week at the end of chapter 1, where Jonah's in the water and God saves him. He saves him with what is probably the most infamous character in the entire story of Jonah... A great fish swallows him up. And that's where we pick up the story here in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is essentially a record of Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving that took place while he was inside the fish. And as we look at this prayer today, we're going to see that he reveals how God delivered him from certain death. How he reveals his gratitude for being alive and agrees even to go preach salvation to the people. But here's what you want to watch for. You see, on the surface, Jonah's prayer appears very genuine. It's this very genuine prayer of repentance. But, but I want to suggest to you that under closer inspection, something's just off. Something's just a little bit off with it. Like, like these prayers, these acts of worship offered up to God should taste sweet. They should be like this pleasing aroma to God as they come up to him. But something's just not right with this prayer that he prays. I have an example for you. Let me, let me show you this. So what, what I have here is a bowl of jelly beans. Now, not just any jelly beans, though. The, the grandest of jelly beans, jelly belly jelly beans, right? Do we agree? Jelly bellies are amazing. The, these tiny little things... And these are authentic jelly belly jelly beans. They're, they're the right size, they're the right shape, they're the right color. They have the, the jelly belly trademark stamp on them. And so I'm wondering, and, and I know this is one of Andrew's favorite treats. 
They're hard to keep in the office. It's close to Andrew. So I'm just wondering, who possibly would like, would like a jelly? Would somebody like a sweet jelly bean? Matt? Yeah? Andrew? It's your favorite, so come on up. Chloe? Yeah? Okay. Well, I, I should probably tell you something, though. These are authentic jelly bellies, but they're actually a particular kind of jelly belly. These are called bamboozled. Have you ever heard of bamboozled, beanboozled? Yeah. See, you've probably heard the word bamboozled before. Bamboozled means to, to fool or to trick somebody. But there's a genuine type of jelly belly called bamboozled. And what happens is in the pack, there are 10 distinct colors, but 20 flavors. You see, each color has two flavors, one tasty and sweet, perhaps like pear or strawberry. Or that same color could be something else like stinky socks or a rotten egg or spoiled milk. They look genuine and authentic. So, uh, I don't know, let's see. Let's see what we get, shall we? Are we willing to still try a jelly bean? All right, so randomly just pick one. We'll see what color you get, and I'll tell you what options you have. White. Well, white ones, that's either coconut or it could be spoiled milk. Mm. So before you, before you, we should probably get this ready, just in case. Okay, I'll just. <laughs> just for this way? All right, so let's, let's see what you get. What'd you get? Uh, some spoiled milk. Spoiled. <laughs> well, okay. All right. Next, let's see what you get there. Oh, you can't, you can't. You just like, let's see what color you got. A green one. So that's either pear, sorry, lime, or that could also be my old eyes. Lawn clippings. That could be lawn. I think it's this guy. Oh, okay. Or it's pear. Okay, it's either pear or booger. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> What'd you get? Bugger. Looks like a booger. How do you know what? So, Chloe, how do you know what boogers taste like, though? Because <laughs> it doesn't taste like the other one. <laughs> All right, Matt, last one. What do we got, man? Go with the blue. One. Blue. Oh, okay. That's either berry blue or toothpaste. So you're, you're almost good either way. Your kids eat it. Your kids eat it. <laughs> so you don't need the bucket for that one. <laughs> What'd you get? Very minty. Very minty. You got toothpaste. Wonderful. Well, thank you guys. So actually what I have here, I have some genuine, good tasting ones for you for, for helping us out. <laughs> so thank you so much for that. But thank you. Yes. But as we'll see here, I think, as Jonah prays, I think what we're going to see is on the surface, his prayer looks genuine and authentic. It's got the right words to it. He says a lot of right things. And by looking at it, it looks like a genuine, authentic prayer of confession. But as we take a closer look, as we actually taste this prayer, something's not right. And we're going to see either it tastes sweet or perhaps it kind of turns the fish's stomach a little bit that he's in. So let's have a look at this. Now, as we come to the end of chapter one, 
We talk about how the sailors have thrown Jonah into the sea and the storm grew calm. But also we're told in, in chapter 1, verse 17, that the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is where we left off last week. And such an event, I think, examines a pause and a few comments before we talk about the prayer itself. Because we know that fish don't swallow and house people. That's just not something that takes place in the world around us. And even if there was this giant fish, this giant whale that could do that, for a person to emerge alive, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to believe. We have to agree that that is an amazing, amazing event. And because of that, it's led to many different theories and views of what's taking place here amongst theologians, but also amongst people who are in this room. If we were to take time and pull everybody in this room, we would see there's a variety of opinions on what did or did not take place in this particular event. See, there's these people who would be more on the side of being skeptical, perhaps, who would say, you know, it falls into the realm of being a legend, now, legends are defined as stories that are based upon true historical events, but they allow some embellishment to take place for effect. And so there are some theologians and probably people in this room and, and, and many others who would say that this is sort of in the realm of legend. There, there's truth in the story. Uh, we still believe that there was a prophet named Jonah, that there was a place called Nineveh. There's still a belief that God exists. Those things aren't in question but the story itself perhaps is in question because they feel this need to get rid of the tabloid type headline, man swallowed by fish and lives. But there's another view. There's more of a view along the line of historical accuracy who would say, no, the story took place just as scripture tells us it took place. Now, even people on that side of the equation have to acknowledge that this is an unbelievable event. It made modern and ancient readers stop and assess the story. Because you can't just hear something like that and not pause for a moment and think about the amazing nature of the story you're hearing. It requires a step of faith to believe this. But I want to show you that as you consider where you fall on this particular issue, that the mechanics are in place for historical narrative to be plausible for you to consider. One thing, for example, we'll get into a little bit more next week when Jonah actually arrives in Nineveh, is you see, there was a time when people didn't believe Nineveh even existed, that no city of that size could ever possibly exist. But they actually uncovered the city of Nineveh back in the mid-1800s, and they found that a lot of it was true, that Nineveh did exist. And as they started going through the different architecture and some of the writings that they discovered, they came across, we'll talk more about this next week in more detail, but they came across ancient writings of a divine wise man who emerged from the sea who was named Jonah. So there's actually evidence outside of the Bible that aspects of the story took place. And we'll talk more about that next week. But secondly, some people think, well, there is no fish large enough to make the story plausible. Well, this term great fish comes from the Hebrew term gadal dag, which can also be translated great sea creature. And in the Mediterranean, there is a great sea creature called a sperm whale who at full growth is over 60 feet long. That's larger than a semi-tractor trailer going down the road. And if you look at one of those big trailers going down the road, you go, you know, a guy could fit in that. So there is evidence of an animal that actually could accomplish this. But here's the problem. 
A lot of people look at this part of the story and they go, this, this whole fish business becomes a litmus test for the entire book of Jonah. Some people even push it to be a litmus test for the entire book of the Bible. But did you notice the other miraculous events that take place in the story as well? You see, God also in the story causes a great storm to turn on and turn off at his will. There's also later on in chapter 4, we'll see that God causes a vine to grow at a pace and in a place and a timing of his will. He sends a worm to eat that vine. He causes a wind to pick up to increase Jonah's discomfort as he's trying to again get his attention and reach him. Few question these other aspects of God being involved in nature and in creation. But you see, from the smallest worm to the greatest sea creature to the wind elements that exist in our world, these are all parts of the created order. And the Christian worldview believes in a God who created, who controls, and who appoints all of creation. A God who will use every means possible to demonstrate his love for people. Who will use every means at his disposal to reach people. And as amazing as the story of a fish swallowing Jonah is, I want to suggest to you that is not the most miraculous story in all of Scripture that people with a Christian worldview hold. See, the greatest example of that, the greatest miracle of that, is found in Jesus Christ himself, where God, who sent his son to be born of spirit and flesh, which we will celebrate in a few weeks at Christmas, that is the greatest miracle that we see in Scripture. Jesus Christ, who, who came to not just be born, but to live and to give his life as a penalty to pay the price for our sins, but then continued and rose victorious on the third day. That's the greatest example of love, of miraculous reaching of people we find in Scripture. But did you know that Jesus also believed in the story of Jonah? And he believed that there are parallels between that story and his own. See, Matthew chapter 12 some Pharisees come to Jesus asking him to perform a miracle and say, prove to us you're the Messiah. In essence, they want him to do a miracle they could use against him to try and trick him again. And his answer to them was this. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." You see, Jonah emerges from the belly of the fish and goes and preaches to Nineveh. And this divine holy man who comes from the sea, who preaches in Nineveh, is God's sign to them that he has provided a way to rescue them from coming destruction. Jesus also draws parallels to this by saying that his messages and his emerging from the grave after three days was God's sign to them that God had made a way for all of them and all of us to be rescued as well. And we want to make a decision on how do we reconcile the story of Jonah. Consider the final piece of evidence that if there's a guy, if there's a guy who can predict his own death and resurrection and then pull it off, if he believes in Jonah, perhaps, perhaps we should too, because that's pretty amazing. So let's pick up the story now. As Jonah is inside the belly of this fish in chapter 2. He opens his eyes, finds himself in the belly of this fish or this whale, whatever it may have been. And as you can imagine, he's a little shocked. But he knows this could only be by the hand of God. And he's grateful to be alive. So let's start going through this prayer verse by verse and see what it reveals for us. 
Because the first part will explain what actually happened to Jonah when he hit the water. And it recounts for us his distress and his deliverance. Chapter 2, verse 2 opens with a summary statement of the situation of his reaction when he says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Jonah flies through the air. He hits the water, and he knows instantly he's in this desperate situation, and he's deeply distressed by the reality of where he finds himself. He references the water here as the realm of the dead. We can understand from that he he believes he is finished. He's experiencing this near-death moment. And so he further describes his surroundings of the stormy Mediterranean, verse 3, when he says, You hurled me into the depths, into the very deep of the sea, and the current swirled around me. All the waves and the breakers swept over me. He acknowledges here that it is you, God, God, you are the one who hurled me into the cold water. It is your waves. It is your current. It is you who is the controller of all these things that are battering against me. As he's in the water. And then verse 4, he continues to sink down below and feels very, very alone as he goes beneath the surface. Removed from the sight of God and from the sight of man. As he says, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. As he sinks under the water, the reality of the situation is starting to weigh heavier and heavier upon him. People who are facing the reality of their own mortality tend to have their minds slip towards the things of God. And Jonah here has his mind again look towards the temple of God. He starts to recall when he was serving God in in that place, the temple in Jerusalem, when when he was worshiping him here in that place. And he longs again to do that, to see that place one more time, to, to worship with one more sacrifice one more time. But as he sinks deeper, deeper still, he begins to near the bottom of the sea. And in verse 5, it says, The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. As the water grows calmer, It also grows colder. As it grows colder, it grows darker. As he sinks deeper and deeper down. And suddenly the void of nothingness, just him and water, is is filled with vegetation. As this thick forest of kelp starts to envelop him and wraps itself around his body up to his head. And then in verse 6, he finally hits the bottom. He knows he's drowning and he waits for the end to come. And he says, to the roots of the mountains I sank. The earth beneath barred me in forever. The sea floor is where mountains begin. You can't get any lower than the sea floor. And the pressure of the weight is heavy upon him, and he accepts the reality that these sandbars will be my eternal prison. Now, it's common to think that when Jonah hits the water, that some great fish or whale breached the surface and caught him midair, kind of Pinocchio style, right? Caught him midair and grabbed him at the surface. But what we read in chapter 2 is actually a very different, a much darker, a much more depressing tale of him sinking lower and lower and lower and being snatched off the floor of the sea. But that's in keeping with one of the motifs of the book of Jonah so far. 
Remember last week we talked about how there was this sense of him going down, sinking from God. The further he ran, the more he ran away from God, the further he sunk down. And it continues here in chapter 2. Last week it says he went down to Joppa. He got to Joppa, he went down to the port. He got on the port, he found a boat. When he got on the boat, he went down below deck. When he went below deck, he went down and fell into a deep sleep. Now in chapter 2, he is hurled into the deep. He is banished from the temple. The deep surrounds him. He sinks deeper and deeper to the point of the roots of the mountain. You see, folks, this is not an unfamiliar story. This is a path that many people walk in different seasons of their lives. I've I've encountered so many over the years who, who have been running from God, maybe not from everything of God, but a particular calling upon their life, something that God's calling them to surrender, to extend forgiveness, something to go do, to stop doing, some aspect of their life that they're denying. It's like they're running away from God, and when they tell the story, there's a sense of the further I ran, the deeper I sank. I've sat and talked with people who were struggling with with drug addictions. They didn't think it was an addiction at the time, and they tried to speak wisdom into their lives. They said, no, I, I got a control of it. It's just a recreational thing. Until a few months pass, and they call me, and they say, it's not fun anymore. I had control of it, but now it has control of me. And they hit rock bottom. A call in the middle of the night when, when a man I know on the other line says, my, husband, my wife just left. I think it's over. And as they come to my office a few days later, I hear the story of years, years of lies and betrayal that if they had just opened the doors earlier and let light come in, it could have saved the end result. And they feel like they've hit rock bottom. A phone call to go to the hospital of a person who was suffering with depression for a long time but kept it quiet and just spiraled downward and downward and downward. They had isolated themselves from people. They had started to lose hope. And they're now in the hospital because they had chosen to try to take their life. These rock bottom moments. And during these dark times, whether you are called upon to speak into someone's life or if you find yourself in the midst of one, it's hard to know what to say. It's hard to know what to do when these people invite you into those moments in their lives, but, but there's something that I know we can do. There's one thing I know in every situation I have the ability to do when I walk into the presence of that room with that person, and it is to point them to the one who has never taken his eye off of them. Point them to the one who has never stopped pursuing them. Even when the storms of life came at them, they missed it as his attention-grabbing love. They miss it as what he says in Isaiah 41, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Is what we can say in those moments. You see, and as Jonah continues to pray, he discovers that even though he has been sinking deeper and deeper and deeper to the bottom of this ocean, God is in the depths with him. Because as we finish verse 6, it says, but, but you, Lord, but you, Lord, my God, brought me up out of the pit. He has been sinking down this whole time, but now his trajectory changes. There's a new dynamic. There is a new hope as he is brought up by the Lord. And in verse 7, he continues the prayer by saying, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you. Now we're heading up. It rose to you, to your holy temple. This remembering is more than just recalling to mind. It's like, oh, I 
I can't believe I forgot that. That's not the remembering it's talking about here. The remembering he's speaking of here has has theological connotations. If we go back to the history of the nation of Israel, and particularly in, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses tells the people of Israel, the people of God, whom Jonah is among and who Jonah is serving as a prophet, he tells all these people to remember God's past acts. Remember God's goodness. Remember God's promises to you. Remember how God rescued you from your enemies. Remember how God provided for you in times of need. Remember how he has always been faithful to you. Remember how you as his people promised to love him with all of your heart, soul, and strength. And as Jonah remembers, he reflects upon the futility of other options. He reflects upon the futility of trusting other gods and and other things that just simply lead to the pit. In verse 8, he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Idolatry was a common problem for Israel. If you read the the Old Testament, you don't have to go very far, and you'll come across some form of idolatry or waywardness that Israel was often very guilty of. And so he has a true statement here. Idols are worthless. Worthless can be synonymous with, with lies. Idols feed lies. Idols bring deceit. Idols are futile. It's a true statement. It's a true statement he's making. There's pointlessness in sacrificing God's love for the powerlessness of idols. But then finally, from a place of thankfulness for the rescue that he has received, this rescue from certain death, Jonah says in verse 9, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. He promises to worship God. He promises that since he has now been saved, he doesn't know where he's going yet, but he kind of has this anticipation probably he will again see the temple in Jerusalem he was praying about a few moments ago. He's like, God, when I get there, I'm going to give you the biggest thanksgiving offering you've ever seen. I can't wait to give back to you the sacrifices in Jerusalem. And he vows to complete the task. You called me to be a prophet, and I'm going to be the best prophet going forward. This is my vow. I will declare to people, salvation comes from the Lord. He doesn't really say where or to whom he's willing to declare those things. We can speculate perhaps Nineveh, but probably not. His mind's on the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this sounds like a solid prayer. You're going going through this thinking that that's a pretty solid prayer of thanksgiving. It's a sense he's turned back to God. Why, Why, Pastor Mark, are you suggesting that he is trying to bamboozle God with this prayer? Well, things on the surface look pretty good. They look like a genuine prayer on the surface. He says a lot of good things in here. But have you ever had somebody come to you and apologize to you? And perhaps their apology is along the lines of, you know, I'm really sorry that, that I offended you when I said your haircut looks funny. But sometimes I'm just too honest. Or if you had somebody say, you know, I, I know I put you in a tough place when I said I would pick you up from soccer and it was raining and it was cold and you're tired and it was dark. But, hey, I regret that mistakes were made. Or how about, you know, I'm sorry you're feeling hurt, honey, but let's just make February 15th our Valentine's Day, right? Those aren't apologies. These are, these are non-apologies. 
they say a lot of right things. They, on the surface, they sound like they're saying good things, and, but there's really no sense of ownership for mistakes that were made. They're actually, a, at a closer look, a little dodgy, maybe even lack some remorse. So let's take another look at a few aspects of Jonah's prayer and see if there's some things we may have missed. You see, first of all, Jonah's perspective throughout this prayer is completely self-focused. And his perception is probably a little distorted. You see, the prayer is not removed from his actions in chapter 1. He is in the whale praying for deliverance because of chapter 1. Those are not two separate events. And he got into this situation because his will, his desires trumped God's, known as sinfulness, waywardness from God. And as he continues to pray, you may have missed this, but go back and read it yourself this afternoon. He uses the pronoun I ten times, my seven times. Some translation, he says, I or my 25 times in eight verses. I called, I looked, I have, I will, I sank, my life, my distress. He's very focused upon the self. Sure, he's thankful to be alive, and he gives credit where credit is due for being alive. But there's no mention of acknowledging, of confessing, of owning up to any sort of wrongdoing or sin that led him to that moment where he needed to be rescued. See, Jonah seems to be claiming this unwavering piety, this unwavering self-righteousness that is kind of hard to stomach a little bit when you consider the whole story, not just the prayer in itself. This is further seen in verse 8, actually, in particular, where he uses idolaters as a means of comparison. Verse 8, he says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I would never do such a thing. But I, with shouts of praise, will, will sacrifice to you. See, he, the claim creates some tension with his previous actions and with his future actions, too. Because as we're going to see next week, yeah, he goes to Nineveh. But it is a begrudging obedience. He is angry and dragging his feet the whole way. He only uses pagans to compare himself to. You know, and here's the thing, the only pagans we are introduced in this story are the sailors. And so what Jonah says is true. It's a true statement. He says the right words. Worthlessness and idols is true. Worshiping the true God is the right way to go. Absolutely. But here's what he doesn't know. You see, he was in the water. He was out of the ship before the sailors turned to God. What he doesn't know is the sailors have actually turned and worshiped God and made vows to him. And they actually come out looking better than Jonah does in light of his actions, his piety, his selfishness, and the pride that still rules in his life. He actually has very little to be proud of. You see, God has Jonah's attention. He has his obedience, as we'll see next week. But he doesn't have Jonah's heart. He has his attention. He has his obedience, but he doesn't have his heart. You see, it's possible for you to know God. It's possible for you to believe in God. It's even possible for you to follow God's will in your lives, but not give him your heart. And you'll know that's the situation if serving him, if obeying him, if following him, if, if praying and reading your Bible feels like this joyless, 
obligatory, dutiful service. If that's how it feels, there's a good chance he has your awareness, he has your obedience, but he doesn't have your heart. Parents know what this looks like. Parents know this all too well. Perhaps mom and dad, you have friends coming over for dinner after work. You've, you've worked all day and they're still cooking to get done. So you think, hey, the kids could help out. And so you call home and you say, hey, could you guys, could you guys clean up the kitchen and maybe give a quick vacuum and, and pick up your rooms so that, you know, the family who's coming over, their kids can play in your room? Reasonable request. And what you want to hear is, yes, mother, and yes, father, we appreciate how hard you work. We, we appreciate that you provide us a home and clothes and fooding, and, and you love us like a parent no other parent possibly could. And mother and father, we desire to share in your extension of the very best of hospitality this evening. What do you get? Oh, do we have to? And what's the response? Just do it already. <laughs> and then they go off and do it, maybe. But even if they do it, you come home, there's tension. Because it's not enough to just do it. We had their attention, we had their obedience, we didn't have their heart. And it brings tension when the heart is not in it. Why? Because doing the job is only half, of it. it's only part of it. Your heart's not in it, it's gonna taste off. See, what Jonah needed to do is to repent. He needed to acknowledge the sinfulness of his running. He needed to acknowledge his selfish reflection, which is what led him to this in the first place. He needed to repent, which literally means an act of changing one's mind and one's heart. See, it goes beyond remorse. It goes beyond regret. It goes beyond just feeling bad. It involves turning away from sin. Repentance is a sense of awareness that one has guilt and wrongdoing. It is then a change of attitude, a change of action regarding that sin. And finally, a desire to walk in obedience to God's will. Jonah's prayer, however, looks good on the surface. But it's nauseating. It's nauseating, I believe, to God and to the fish. Because in verse 10 it says, And the Lord commanded the fish to vomit Jonah onto the land. You can read that as just an effective, dramatic explaining of how Jonah got out of the fish. Or you can look at it and think, you know, maybe God and the fish just had enough of Jonah talking and vomited him onto the land. You see, God had Jonah's attention, he had his obedience, but he didn't have his heart. In our relationship with God, there will be times when we have questions, when, when we have doubts in our own lives, when we disagree with what we sense God is calling us to do. And here's the thing, that's okay. It's okay to have doubts and questions. It's okay to not agree with everything that we might read in the Bible, everything that we might encounter when we have godly counsel come to our lives, everything we might sense God leading us to. But be careful, because doubts and questions are not sinful. Allowing those to infect our hearts is, though. You see, if we allow our preferences, our desires, our will to rule, that's a form of running away from God. I know you said to do this. I, I heard you say this. I, I read that I should be doing this or, or about this, but 
I'm just not going to. It's a, it's a form of pushing it aside, of putting distance, a form of running from God. And don't be surprised if we do that and God throws a storm at you. When he throws a storm at you, it's, it's not his judgment necessarily of you. Quite often it's him trying to get our attention. It's his loving way of saying, stop, return to me. Because he knows the depth to which we can sink when we get further and further from his presence. Alternatively, we can choose to obey, but if our duty is nothing more than that, it'll be done from a bitter heart. And if we simply serve from a bitter heart, we know that it leaves a bad taste in our mouths and in God's because it falls so far short of the abundant life that God has planned for you. But there's a third option. The third option is we can trust to follow God where he may lead us. We we can trust to, to confess our disapproval, ask him to soften our hearts, help us understand why, Lord, why this? Why do you call me to this? Why do you want me to leave that alone? Then when we read our Bibles, when we receive counsel from godly people, when we have this sense of leading in our prayers, when we don't see what's ahead and we're fearful, we can lay that down. We can confess it and lay it down as an act of faith and trust. Say, Lord, I believe you are not trying to keep something from me, but you have something for me. And if we can do that, if we can allow his will to rule in our lives and confess any part of us that is trying to do it ourselves apart from him, to run from him, if we can do that, then I truly believe that we have the opportunity to experience what the psalmist says when he says, come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Next week when we get to chapter three, it opens with these words. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. See, he's not just the God of first chances. He's also the God of second, third, fourth, fifth. He's the second, he's the God of second, third, fourth, fifth chance. Whoever many chances you need, he will keep calling you because he loves you. He has a great plan for your life. And he wants to shape you so that he can reveal that to others. I invite you if you'd stand as we just have a closing word of prayer. Heavenly Father is we come together here to pray, we thank you for your tenacious pursuit of all of us. That that when we're not faithful to you, you are so faithful to us, Lord, because you love us. God, those who may be here who have never responded to that initial call upon their lives, that, that you have been reaching them, Lord, you have been reminding them that you love them, you have a plan for their life, and yet you want to forgive them, and there's resistance. God, I pray for any here in that situation who have never said thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for my sins upon the cross, that the Spirit would speak loudly to them in this moment. And that here today in this moment, they would say, yes, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for paying the price I cannot. I've been feeling the sinking. I know what it feels to feel the weight of the pressure of my sin. And thank you, Jesus, for taking that upon yourself, for setting me free. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for me. I now give you mine. Lord, there are those of us here also who who know there's areas that we're stuck in. Relationships, addictions, habits, temptations that we know your word says, that your people say, that that you have said to us, leave it behind and follow me. And yet we run. Can I pray for any of those situations too, that in this moment right now, we would 
honestly confess and just lay that at the feet of the cross. That we would experience your forgiveness, Lord. That you would set us free. And that you would be our living hope today and every day forward.